Matthew 27, 27 through 44 is our text. The topic, Jesus chooses to give his life on the cross out of obedience to his Father and love for us. The title of our message, Cross My Heart and Chose to Die. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. You've given us an opportunity to worship you, to draw close to you, as it were, uh, to understand your presence, Lord, and, and to, um, to enjoy it. And now, Lord, your word is open before us. It's alive, it's powerful, it uh, can discern between the soul and the spirit, meaning it can get in the deepest parts of us and reveal Jesus Christ to us. We see through a mirror darkly, the scripture says, Lord. We, we don't see completely, but we see Jesus and are changed into his image from glory to glory. I pray today, Lord, that there would be a glorious transformation of our hearts as we see what you did for us on the cross. And Lord, if there are any uh, individuals here that don't know you in a saving way, we leave it to your Holy Spirit to draw them to Christ and to convict them of their sin and of their need for his righteousness. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, and died on the cross, do you think that the devil thought he had won his long war against God? Well, it's probably not a good idea to speculate on what the devil thought or thinks, but I've heard it taught and have probably repeated the teaching that Satan believed he was victorious when Jesus died. C.S. Lewis illustrated this in his classic story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, the Lion King who represents Jesus, took the place of Edward and died the death Edward deserved. The witch, who represents Satan, thought she was victorious. But Aslan reappeared, surprising the witch because in Lewis's story, there was a deeper magic that the witch knew nothing about. I'm not so sure we can honestly say that Satan was unaware of what might happen should Jesus die. After all, Jesus had been forthcoming about going to the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. God addressed Satan all the way back in the Garden of Eden right after mankind sinned, promising to come himself as the Savior and die. The devil saw God slay an animal, probably a lamb, maybe two, in order to cover Adam and Eve's sin until he would come and do the same. Satan would have understood John the Baptist's declaration concerning Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus had made no secret of the fact that if he were to be crucified, he would draw all men to himself. What am I getting at? In the account of his crucifixion that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, there seems to be an emphasis on mocking Jesus in order to get him to come down off the cross. In verse 40, it reads, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 42, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Then in verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. I'm not saying Satan understood all the ramifications of Jesus' substitutionary death for us. I'm not saying Satan, who the Bible describes as a murderer from the beginning, wasn't elated that Jesus had died. I am seeing, though, in this text that there was a powerful temptation incited by Satan for Jesus to come down off of the cross. Had he done so, there would be no forgiveness of sins, no reconciliation of God with mankind, no eternal life in a glorious heaven in fellowship with our creator. 
as we work through the verses, remember something else about the cross. Jesus had told his disciples that they too would take up their cross after him. This text is not about us, not directly, but we are in it as those called upon to follow after the Lord, taking up our cross. What we see him enduring with his cross, we can uh, expect to endure in some measure as we take up our cross. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you'll be tested by the weight of the cross you take up for Jesus. And number two, you'll be tempted to withdraw from the cross you take up for Jesus. Let's take a look first of all in verses 27 through 37 at the weight of the cross. Now it's been insightfully said that if Jesus had not been nailed to the cross, love would have held him there. That's true and blessedly so, but we must recognize that it emphasizes the fact that dying on the cross, including all of the terror and suffering that led up to it, were a choice that Jesus made. He could have stopped his torment at any point. He could have come down off the cross. Remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, I could call 12 legions of angels right now and put, this, uh, put an end to this. And so at any point during his ordeal, from the Passover dinner all the way through, Jesus Jesus could have said no. As we work through these verses, think of how powerful an incentive the pain and the torture, both physical and spiritual, were for Jesus to cry uncle instead of seeing it through and crying out to his father, it is finished. So verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. A garrison with 600 soldiers, it's not likely all of them were involved, just those on duty at the time. Uh, A word of encouragement, you never know when Jesus might, in a spiritual way, become the subject of your everyday activities. You and I as Christians should be ready to take advantage of it. In this case, these soldiers, whoever happened to be on duty, uh, Jesus came into their presence and they mistreated the Lord, and they mocked him as we see, but um, in a reverse way, we need to understand that you just never know when, uh, uh, to put it mildly, Jesus might show up. You've experienced that probably at work or in school where all of a sudden you realize people are talking about Jesus, or they're talking about the end times, they're talking about the Bible, and we just need to be ready at those times to give an answer to every man of the hope that is in us. From a review of the other gospel accounts, it seems that Pontius Pilate was on hand to witness the soldiers mistreating Jesus. I only mention that because sometimes people want to exonerate Pilate, make it seem like he wasn't really all that involved in some of this, uh, that he, of course, did want to let Jesus go, but he put up with a lot of uh, terrible things that people did to Jesus during this few hours. It says here in verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This wasn't something they normally did. This was specifically designed to mock Jesus' claim to be the king of the Jews. How much mocking can you take? Before you answer, add to it torture during the mocking, and then consider that at any moment, you could choose to end the mocking and the torture. Hey, I cry uncle at the first sign of problem. I love living in America, I love being an American, I love our rights. Everybody understand that? Okay, at the same time, man, almost nothing has to happen before you're filing a grievance at work, right? Hey, I can't be, you're not gonna treat me this way. 
I've got rights and I'm going to uh, you know, get my union rep or whoever and stuff and we're gonna go through this. All of that's fine, that's why we live in America, but we have a low tolerance for mocking and reviling and a lower tolerance for torture. Of course, some of us think our jobs are torture <laughs> and I would agree with you in some cases. You should work here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> think of the devil at the cross as one of those guys in movies who is the torturer, who never fails to break his subject. He always has some incredible device or devices for inflicting pain in order to achieve his goal. All I have to do is say, marathon man. And those of you who've seen the, that scene in the movie, I can't even remember what happened in the movie. I think I watched it on TV years ago. But there's a scene where Dustin Hoffman is being tortured by a dentist in the dentist chair. It's just drilling without anesthesia and stuff and just, is it safe? Ah, he's screaming. I've never been able to go to the dentist without thinking about that as soon as the drill. And you know, as far as torture, if you wanted to torture me, you just need to get a dentist drill and make the noise. If it was on your phone, I would fall to my knees. I mean, I just, that's all. Uh, if Jesus, being fully human, had a point at which he would snap and take up his divine attributes and say no to the cross, Satan was trying to find it. Verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They literally, it says, pressed it down upon his head, uh, pushing it into the skin, causing enormous physical pain. This was thorns that were maybe four or five inches long. Crown of thorns, though, is appropriate to symbolize the suffering of our Lord and King. I mean, he, um, I don't want to say he proudly wore that crown of thorns, but I think you get the idea. Yet he was suffering on our behalf. It was the perfect crown for him that day. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. There's something really disgusting about being spit on. Again, we see a combination of physical abuse and spiritual abuse trying to get Jesus to a breaking point. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. The scholars who figure out timelines think that Jesus was mistreated by the soldiers for about two hours. Four of them would then lead him away to be crucified. Uh, now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Condemned men carried their cross to the place of crucifixion. Scholars cannot agree as to whether or not a criminal carried the entire cross, dragging it behind, or just the 100-pound crossbar strapped to the shoulders, which would then be attached to the vertical part waiting at the site of crucifixion. It seems predictable that a person would fall under the weight of it, Jesus especially was weakened by the ordeal he had suffered in the last 15 hours or so. That ordeal included the following. First, there was the tense atmosphere of the upper room where Satan entered Judas. There was the betrayal by Judas, <clears throat> the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, the desertion by his disciples, a series of six illegal trials, a beating by the Sanhedrin, the denials of Peter, the crowds preferring Barabbas be released rather than the Son of God, the pronunciation of his death sentence, the scourging by the Roman soldiers, the crown of thorns, all of this with the deprivation of sleep and the realization he was still going to suffer and die on the cross 
taking upon himself the sins of the whole world. Simon would have been coming into Jerusalem to go to the temple to offer the sacrifice of his Passover lamb. On his way, he encountered a crucifixion procession. Did you know that if the court needs to call a jury and they've run out of potential jurors, the bailiff can come out into the government center courtyard and compel you to be a juror on the spot? Did you know that? Don't go to the government center. (laughs) Don't say I didn't warn you. One source I searched said that travel from Cyrene to Jerusalem could take a month. The Passover was therefore a pretty big deal to Simon. He had set out more than 30 days earlier from Cyrene at great risk, uh, traveling you know, in a time when it was difficult to travel and dangerous in order to come to Jerusalem and offer a Passover lamb. Helping Jesus would immediately disqualify Simon from Passover because he would have come into contact with blood. And so just like that, close to Jerusalem, almost to the temple, it's like planes, trains, and automobiles. You know, you just, it just, you're just, Simon, you almost made it, but then the Roman soldier said, pick up that cross covered with the blood of Jesus Christ and carry it to the place of crucifixion. Regarding Simon, Warren Wiersbe writes this, though. It says, in his gospel, Mark referred to Simon as though the people reading his gospel would recognize him, calling him the father of Alexander and Rufus. Apparently, these two sons were well-known members of the church, seems likely that this humiliating experience resulted in Simon's conversion as well as the conversion of his family. Simon came to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb and he met the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for him. Amazing. Verse 33, when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. The Latin word for Golgotha is Calvaria, where we get our English word Calvary. A couple of thoughts on the place of a skull. Some say that the site bears this name because from a distance, it resembles a skull. There is such a site in Israel and many believe it to be the place of the crucifixion. You might have seen pictures of it uh, in Bible handbooks and things like that. However, others point out that it likely looks that way on account of excavations in the Middle Ages and that it did not resemble a skull in the first century. Others say the site derived its name from the simple fact it was the normal place of execution and that so many people had died there and so it just became the place of a skull. Truth is, we do not know the site of Calvary, not for certain. Verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. When he had tasted it, he would not drink. Mark says they offered Jesus wine mingled with myrrh and he refused it. Matthew, that they offered him wine mingled with gall, and he tasted it, then refused it. One source explains this seeming contradiction like this. Myrrh may have been used with wine to strengthen the drink, but it has no effect on pain. But myrrh tastes bitter, so a large dose of it mingled with wine would make the latter undrinkable. Whether customary or not, the drink was offered to Jesus, but it was so bitter he refused it, and according to this view, the soldiers were amused. Mark keeps the word myrrh to describe the content, and Matthew uses gall to describe the taste. 
If that's a true analysis, it means that the soldiers were still mocking Jesus. They offered him something to dull his pain, but it was in a form that was undrinkable simply to be cruel. Again, it's like that scene in the movies where they're torturing the guy and he says, if you'll just do this, we'll let you go. Well, you know they're gonna kill him, you know. And so, or they offer you water and then they spill it out in front of you. And so that, the soldiers um, were being, uh, continuing to mock Jesus. This entire text keeps emphasizing the mockery of Jesus Christ to get him to take action. Then they crucified him. Four words. None of the gospels describes in graphic detail the crucifixion. If the gospel writers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit in what they wrote said little about the actual crucifixion, then so should we. Verse 35, they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The prophecy is from Psalm 22. We're gonna have more to say about Psalm 22 when we get to verse 46. Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those words are the opening words of Psalm 22. And many commentators believe that Jesus would not have stopped there, but that he recited the entire psalm from the cross. Now, most of you know that it predicts with 100% accuracy Jesus suffering on the cross about 400 years before it happened. One of the things we read in Psalm 22 in verse 12 that's pertinent to our study this morning is this. It says, many bulls have compassed me Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Now, Bashan is mentioned 60 times in the Bible. It was a city on the east side of the Jordan River. Og, who was king of Bashan, was the last of a line of giants that Moses was supposed to conquer. There are those who believe that Bashan was the land where the fallen angels who married the sons of, uh, the daughters of men in Genesis chapter six dwelt. Thus, the prophecy could well be referring to the demonic spiritual forces that were present around the cross. And so this could be a reference to the fact that, uh, a nod to the fact that there were demons and the devil around the cross. We speculate, obviously, that they would be, but we want to find scriptural basis for it. Uh, Verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Hanging there on the cross, Jesus was exactly the king that was described centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah. He said in Isaiah 52, 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. When Pilate brought Jesus back out and presented him to the Jews, he looked at him and he says, behold the man. There was almost nothing left to him after his scourging and his crown of thorns. He barely looked human. That's exactly what Isaiah said would happen to the Messiah. Isaiah 53, five and seven, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. Perfect description from Isaiah of what Jesus was enduring on the cross. Now in the book of Hebrews, we are told concerning the cross 
to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I, we're the joy that was set before Jesus, our salvation, our eternal life. He pushed beyond any breaking point in order to save us. Had Jesus stopped at any moment and come down off the cross, we could not be saved. Now, I mentioned the comment of Jesus to his followers earlier in his ministry when he said this. This is from Matthew 16. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that person will find it. People have twisted this to describe something in their lives that is a terrible burden, describing it as their cross to bear, giving the impression that they'd get rid of it if only they could. We understand it to mean that following Jesus requires 100% commitment of our lives, including dying for him if it becomes necessary in order to obey him. And so the idea of taking up the cross uh, in the first century meant you were on your way to be crucified, you were going to die. And so Jesus said, this is what it's like to be a disciple. You're gonna follow me unto death if necessary, uh, and it's gonna require 100% of your commitment. He endured his cross for you for the joy that was set before him. We are to endure our cross for him for the simple joy of obeying him, anticipating seeing him, and looking full in his wonderful face. One thing we sometimes, you know, we always want reasons for things, want things explained to us. At a basic level, we obey the Lord because it brings him joy. And we want to bring him joy because of what he did for us. That's the bottom line. Not what we're gonna get out of it, not will it make me a better person, not how it fits into our politics, not this, not that. I obey the Lord because I ought to. He obeyed his father, went to the cross for me so that I could live. I obey him. I go to the cross if necessary all the way to death so that I can have joy in his presence. Now we can learn things about what taking up a cross is like from seeing Jesus as he took up his. One thing we see is that at one point, his cross became too heavy for him. He fell under its crushing weight. Jesus had to be helped with the cross. That tells me that there may come times in your life that taking up your cross becomes so heavy, so crushing, that you fall under it. And we don't like this at all. We are the ones who always say, God won't give you more than you can handle, tough it out, you know, those kinds of things. But Jesus fell under the weight of his cross and needed help to continue. Now, I don't mean you fall into sin. I mean that something, some news, some condition, some event, halts you in your tracks and you feel like you're being crushed. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Now, there's a guy that's being crushed. He says, trouble crushed us we couldn't make any progress, we despaired of our lives, we thought about killing ourselves. Now God sees to it you're enabled to continue. He will provide a Simon of his own choosing. Could be a person or persons, but it need not be restricted to that. 
Realize that God will provide you with a Simon. He will enable you to go on taking up your cross and thereby continue to die to yourself. Taking up the cross is meant to be a permanent thing. It is lifelong. You are dying to self every day more and more until you are dead. You're dying until you're dead. Now, in verses 38 through 44, you'll be tempted to withdraw from the cross you take up for Jesus. When we read the Gospels, we almost always want to give what's called a harmony of the Gospels. That means we want to put all the accounts together and give a moment-by-moment commentary because we don't want to leave out any details. There is a place for that, but sometimes in doing that, we miss the peculiar emphasis a particular Gospel might introduce. In these remaining verses, Matthew emphasizes the crowd at the cross mocking Jesus by demanding he come down from the cross and save himself. Since we know that Jesus was in control of his own life, even on the cross, we should see this as a genuine temptation and one that if succumbed to would have overthrown the entire plan of redemption. And so verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Now drop down for a minute to verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now we know one of these criminals believed Jesus and was saved. But notice that is not Matthew's emphasis. He omits that incredible detail. Don't you think that's a pretty incredible detail? That of, of the two thieves, the robbers, insurrectionists, one of them got saved and was with Jesus in paradise that day. Matthew says nothing about it because he's focused like a laser on this idea of everyone reviling and mocking Jesus to get him to come down off the cross, tempting him to save himself. Verse 39, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the son of God, that should sound familiar to you from reading the Gospel of Matthew. Twice in his wilderness temptation of Jesus, back in chapter four, the devil approached the Lord saying, if you are the son of God. And Satan in those temptations, you remember, was trying to circumvent Jesus from going to the cross. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world right now if you'll worship me. It's yet another reason that we can be confident Satan was at the cross. He was inciting these words. In the desert, Jesus had been weakened by 40 days of fasting. At the cross, as I said, he was reduced to something barely human both in appearance and what we would call strength. I don't know how we could even say that he had any strength. Jesus once said about his life, he says, no one takes it from me, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. It was, strictly speaking, up to Jesus to decide if he was going to finish what he was, uh, had started and die on the cross. Verse 41, likewise the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God, we will believe him. Wasn't that the goal, to be believed and received by the nation of Israel as their king? And now here they were saying, just come down off the cross, use your power, and we will believe you. 
Several times in Jesus' life, he shows he was a man on a mission. He had a purpose which he intended to fulfill. At a young age, he said, I must be about my father's business. In the last days of his earthly life, he set out resolutely for Jerusalem where he knew he would be killed. Jesus put it this way in Luke 19, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Because he would save others, Jesus would not save himself. He could have saved himself, but he would not and he did not. By his obedience unto death, Jesus draws all men to himself to save those who by the grace of God believe on him. Now back up for a minute. Prior to the cross, Satan tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross in ways besides the wilderness temptation. First, he tried to have Jesus killed as an infant by inciting Herod to kill all the children under two years of age. Tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross by killing him as a baby. At the very beginning of his public ministry, Satan incited the members of the local synagogue to try to throw Jesus off a cliff and kill him prior to the cross. Satan was involved when Peter tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. You remember that Jesus addressed Peter in a way that outed the devil saying, get behind me, Satan. Jesus kept focused on the cross. He spoke openly of dying there and of what it would accomplish. Satan kept trying to block Jesus from going to the cross, either by getting him to avoid it or by killing him prematurely. We know that the Jews did not have the legal right to execute anyone. But that did not stop them, in the book of Acts, from stoning Stephen to death. What am I saying? Satan may have hoped that the Jews would have stoned Jesus to death for blasphemy without sending him to Pontius Pilate, just nullifying the prophecies of the cross. There is some spiritual strategy going on around the cross that we could never possibly understand. Jesus said, I am going to be crucified. He said he was gonna be betrayed by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles, but there was no guarantee that once he was held by the Sanhedrin that they were going to obey the law. They didn't obey it later with Stephen. They could have stoned Jesus right then. It would have been illegal, but what did they care? But instead, things were set in motion behind the scenes so that the crucifixion took place. So the devil is always trying to block the plan of God as prophesied in the scripture. On the cross, Satan was tempting Jesus to come down. The Lord was at his weakest point, physically speaking. If ever he might take up his own life again, it certainly was as he hung there. He did not come down. As we sing in one of our favorite choruses, you did it for me, you did it for love. It's your victory, Jesus, you are enough. Because of your cross, my debt is paid. Because of your blood, my sin is washed away. Now all of my life I freely give because of your love I live. Satan's not done trying to defeat the plan of God among his current strategies. He's trying to exterminate all the Jews from planet Earth, which would nullify God's many promises to return to a remnant of Jews, save them, and establish the promised kingdom of heaven on the earth. You ever wonder why the Jews are under such massive oppression? They're being disciplined by God for sure, but the, things like the Holocaust, that is a satanic effort to exterminate the Jewish race. 
Anti-Semitism is a movement to exterminate the Jewish race. In the tribulation, the Antichrist rises to power and tries to exterminate the Jewish race because then there would be no one for Jesus to return to who uh, would recognize him as the one they pierced. The devil's not stupid. He's bent, he's deceived, he's wicked, he's malevolent, but he's not stupid. And he's always trying to thwart the plan of God. Now we are to take up the cross and Jesus is our example as we saw. From this account in Matthew, we learn that as we take up the cross, we will be tempted to abandon it. Could be a total abandonment, what we call apostasy, when a person just denies the Lord, turns their back on the Lord and walks away as if they were never saved. More often, it's what we call backsliding when we simply refuse to obey the Lord in some area or areas. I was thinking about this this week and I realized that whenever I disobey the Lord, however slightly, I effectively am laying down the cross for some selfish reason. I'm just deciding at that moment, I am not going to take up your cross. I'm not going to take up the cross. I'm gonna leave it here. I've gotten this far with it and I, I intend to go farther, but just for a couple of days or a few minutes or a few hours, it's gonna wait for me while I get involved in this over here. Then I'll come back, I'll pick it up again, I'll take off where I left off. The mantra that people have today, God wants me to be happy. I bring this up all the time because I hear it all the time. And so I read the word of God, these people, everybody reads the word of God, we see what it says. God has set loving boundaries the way any parent does. All of you who have been parents or have had good parents, you know what I'm talking about. Loving boundaries. We joke about kids playing on the freeway, but there's bound, we don't, don't really want your kid to play on the freeway, and so you set boundaries. You say, you can go here and no farther, because once you go farther, you're in the street, you're gonna get run over and die. And so there are loving boundaries. You're a kid, you think the street looks so amazing. My ball is in the street. There's this in the street. My friend is in the street. I'm going out into the street and disobey. So God sets loving boundaries. And then we know what they are. They're not hard to figure out. They're, they're spelled out in the scripture, not to hurt us, but to help us. And then we look at that and we say, I don't like that boundary. I don't agree with that boundary because I'm not happy in that boundary. I'm, I feel bound. I don't like this situation I'm in. I think I'd like another situation, so I'm going to go over there because God, wa yes, God said this, but he also wants me to be happy. And my happiness outweighs whatever God said, and so I'm gonna go be happy, and then after I think I'm happy, then I'll pick up the cross again, and I'll start walking with the Lord. Now, God is incredibly gracious, Sin abounds and grace does much more abound, but Paul said, should I sin therefore that grace would abound? He says, God forbid you would ever think that. And, and, and so we need to be careful that we are not those who abandon the cross. I quoted Hebrews 12 too earlier. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer applies that truth in the very next verse when he says, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. In other words, we're to look to Jesus and realize that we have to follow through on the cross. We can't just let it slide. And so the questions today, is the cross crushing you? 
then a Simon will be compelled by God to help you. It may be a person, it may be a verse from God's word. God has many resources. You need to wait for it. He or she or it will come. Don't restrict God's source to any one person or thing or any event happening. You need to accept his help in whatever form it takes. And so, you know, hopefully those of you who have gone through or will go through or are going through really severe trials will understand this. Jesus fell under the weight of his cross. And there are times things happen to people that are so extreme that you are just crushed by it. But God says, I will come to you. There is a Simon, wait for him, wait for it, and we will continue together to the place of crucifixion. I'll work good together in this, but just wait for me. Are you thinking about laying down the cross even for a moment while you put yourself first? Or maybe someone is involved in some ongoing sin and you've never thought about it this way that you're not really taking up your cross at that moment, you've abandoned it. Are you entertaining the thought God wants me to be happy as a way of overruling what you know to be God's will for your life? Then just turn and look at Jesus on the cross, barely recognizable as a human being. He did it for you, he did it for love. Jesus, as a man, he was the God man, fully God and fully human, but on the earth, in his first coming, he laid aside the prerogatives of his deity, he refused to touch his deity and he lived as a man. Jesus, do you think at any time he looked at a situation that his father set in front of him and said, nope, you want me to be happy. I'll go to the cross, but it has to be neat and clean. None of this crown of thorns, I'm not gonna be spit on. I didn't sign up for this. You want me to be happy. I'm willing to die, but it's gotta be a clean death. It's blasphemy to even think like that. But see, that's the rub because Jesus said, I went to the cross. I, I, I took up my cross. You take up your cross. And if Jesus could find joy in that by looking at you, by looking at me, Jesus looked at me and he saw me in 1979 becoming a Christian and it kept him on the cross. And he looked at you that are Christians and he saw you And it said, I am not, the nails aren't holding me. Love for you is holding me. God doesn't want me to be happy. He wants me to be obedient. So whatever you're going through, don't withdraw from the cross. Because one day you're gonna look at Jesus full in his wonderful face and you're gonna be happy that you obeyed God. Let's pray.